Noah. How are you? I'm fine. I'm good. I'm wearing a long sleeve, horizontal striped blue and white shirt. Yes, it made me think of that shirt that you made. Oh. That we took photos of. That's right. That's right. I feel kind of like a disheveled mime right now. (laughs) That's a good look, though. Yeah, I feel like it fits. It fits what I'm trying to serve, I think. Yeah. It's like a Halloween costume, the label of which would be sexy, disheveled mime. You know, this is coming out at some point, but as we're recording it, there's a giant smoke cloud over all of New England. Oh, right. Yeah. Have you noticed that? whole? I have noticed that by the fact that it's not blazing sunshine in my window right now. I noticed it yesterday when it was like this beautiful red hazy light in the morning and it was just so nice walking out to the garden with the puppy. And then Grunge Girl told me it's because Canada's on fire. (laughs) It's because of a giant natural disaster. No biggie. And it was very weird to be sitting in the middle of the woods and have nature and the light all look, you know, pretty and ominous. It was very post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, pre-apocalyptic, really. <laughs> or just apocalyptic. Just apocalyptic. Why do we need to, you know... Why does everything have to be pre and post, you know? Yeah, that's true. Just live in the moment. Live in the apocalypse you have now. Don't right. always be looking back and forward. So, yeah, I mean, that's been good. That's been my day, you know. Canada, yeah. I'm sorry. That's no good. Is there anything else of value to tell you? No. Nothing. No, How are you, Ava? Nothing. Not a thing. Baruch Hashem. I feel like I haven't said Baruch Hashem on the show in a while. I'm well. It's really weird to be recording the Hi, How Are You part of this episode because it will be so out of time. It's like a, a timeless, I need to answer how I am in a in a suspended moment in a way that will make sense however long in the future this is released. Well, what you're describing is a problem with all of our episodes. I know, but I'm especially conscious of it now. And problems only exist when I'm particularly conscious of them. You know that. That's No, it's a healthy way to live your life. But yeah, I'm good. My boyfriend has just gone out very sweetly to get my prescriptions and get me a burger. Oh. God, I love that man. He just does so many little... It's the little tasks that get me. I haven't gotten up to get something I forgot to bring to my chair in years. You know, it's just like uh, he's always happy to do those little things. And it really is a big quality of life improvement. You know, something I appreciate about living with you and I guess dating you back in the wee. Right. You know, back in season one. That you're a good eater. You know what I mean? Uh Yeah. You're a good eater. You'll eat a burger. You know, you don't care. It's true. I will. I love that. I love that. Not a picky eater. No. I'm sorry, is this embarrassing to bring up? Um, it just is not. I was dead no idea where this was going to go. Oh, no. No, I'm just, you know, you, you eat burgers. It's it's true. Yeah. Something about that I find endearing. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's very endearing quality. I, I Burger is probably like my number one craving that like can't be satisfied at home. Like a fast food burger is like there's no nothing I could replicate in the home that would hit that spot. Mm. And sometimes it just must be satiated. Well, you're going to have a backyard soon, your new place. You should get a grill. There is a grill. We've made burgers there before, and we will again, I assume. We've started moving things out of the house, which is very surreal. Because, you know, we're moving into my boyfriend's mom's house next month when this is being recorded. Because it's his mom's house, we sort of like have time to move our things in slowly instead of having to move them all on the day. So we've started moving some of the like 
less daily use stuff over to the house. So I'm officially a little bit moved. Oh, that's very nice. And for listeners who don't know, this is an exceptional mom. Oh my God. She is great. From what I've she's gleaned. She's just the best. You get haircuts also, from her? Also, you've met her and she's hot. D- did I meet her and she's hot? Yeah, when you helped me move here, you and every one of my other friends who helped me move commented on it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, literally everyone who helped me move was like, who is that? Who is she? Right, right. She stole the spotlight at my own moving party. Right. I thought it was your boyfriend's sister. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I thought that her grandmother was his Uh, grandmother was his was his mother it was all generation it was a whole thing it was very confusing they should work on you know fixing that to be less confusing for everyone yeah i'll let them i'll give them that feedback i'm sure they'll get right on it but she gives you haircuts right you get yeah great haircuts she has her own salon i'm very blessed in many ways there you go wow and also recently i graduated my talmud fellowship my svara teaching fellowship that i've been in for two years Congratulations! so that's very surreal two years of studying complete i got a certificate and everything are you gonna frame it and stuff it's framed already they sent it to me framed oh that's good as like a present Mm-hmm. that's great that's great yeah you want to hold it up to the camera that's in a place that would be annoying to get it all right that's fine you don't have to it's like behind this chair so what next in your journey of jewish learning slash community participation slash building more of the same more shalmala and more podcasts to yeah. come for mm-hmm. the foreseeable future yeah one day we should like buy a building have the high how are you building that we you know, yeah. sleep in that would be or something. cute it would be cute to have it like a giant neon sign that says hi how are you yeah 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 I feel like people would appreciate that as part of a skyline we'll take over one of those like payday loan places and exactly. change it to hi how are you um okay anyway yes we're not here to talk about buying a hi how are you building no we're not we're here to talk about Temple OS. Temple OS episode one. Episode, well, this is the first episode we're recording, but it's not the first episode in the series. Right, right. I guess it's episode two, I two, think. but part one, that isn't the intro, you know? Right. As we discussed in our previous episode, as we will discuss in our previous episode, right? Um, we're going to start out each of these episodes, which are on multifarious topics with a little bit of talking about what's interesting about Temple OS on a technical level, because we have so much to say about what's interesting about it on a cultural and textual and spiritual level, that fitting in all the stuff that makes it interesting as a piece of technology became kind of a challenge. And so we're just going to weave it in throughout all of our episodes. So today we're going to talk about the era of computing that inspired Terry when he was creating Temple OS. And the reason this is important, I mean, it'll become clear as we continue in this episode, but people may not know or may not be consciously aware of the fact that different eras of computing have had really different values and virtues and cultures around computing and ideas about what its role is in society. And that really informs what's up with Temple OS. So Terry OS has, Terry OS, Terry has has said in the past that he was really inspired by the Commodore 64 era of computing. Do you know anything about 
the Commodore 64 or about this era of computing, Michael? Have oh, you heard of it before this moment? I have heard of it. I know it's like an old thing. <laughs> yeah, on the money there. I feel like it was a thing that people could just kind of tinker with a lot and could really you could hold in your mind like all of the how it works if that makes sense you're sort of like getting at the right stuff there so the commodore 64 was a a home pc that came out in 1982 from the commodore international company a couple things made it special part of it was this was the moment here in 1982 with creation of the Commodore 64 where they were able to produce this computer for a low enough cost that it became a price that many average people could afford to have one in their home. It was able to be a lot of people's first hobby PC that they could have in their home. A lot of people's first PC ever, but like a lot of people's first hobby PC. A defining characteristic of this era was that computers were still simple enough that without too much too much book learning, you could sort of hold in your head everything that was going on in the computer. You know, most programming that was done at this time was sort of low level enough that it was intelligible to hobbyists and not just professionals. And the same thing for hardware modification. It was also relatively simple compared to the kind of complicated stuff that we work on today. And the Commodore 64 sort of gave rise to this era of computing called the demo scene, where it became sort of a global subculture for people to take other computer programs, existing computer programs, and modify them on their home PCs to make different weird pieces of art and music and games and all kinds of weird stuff. And so modifying and remixing and creating like self-expression using the home computer was just like born in this time. This was like a previously sort of unknown way of engaging with computers for the most part until the era of the Commodore 64 because so many people could have computers and because so many people had the same computers, so many of these programs were compatible with each other. They were able to be shared around the community widely. Oh, this is the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the beginning. It's, you're just speaking very neutrally about all of this stuff. And like, it just brings up anxiety in me. Like, oh, like, I wish that never happened. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Why, kind of. Tell me more. I don't know. I don't know. Home computing, probably a mistake, you know? You know Interesting. What I mean? Not worth it in the end. Wow. Not worth it. That's going to be attention as we move through making this series. I know. I'm sorry. I remember I had a dentist, a Transylvanian dentist, actually. Okay. Who was very, you know, sympathetic to the new immigrant family that arrived in Massachusetts and kind of, you know, had a European disposition. Uh Uh-huh. You know, an Eastern European disposition. So my parents got along real well. And later in life, I visited her like in my 20s to get my teeth cleaned. And she was like, yeah, computers are terrible. This is what that reminds me of. Just reminds me of a Transylvanian dentist telling me that computers are terrible. You've become the Transylvanian dentist you wish to see in the world. Kind of, yeah. I'm sorry to say that I'm going to need a more developed critique than computers are terrible to come anywhere close to agreeing with you. But I hear you. I hear your feelings. Okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. That was totally just me just like blasting feelings out. I mean, it's fine. This, This podcast is for feelings as well as thoughts. I'm just not necessarily 
suede seems not inherently bad no it's not inherently bad just you know i mean to me i think the issue is it i mean one of the issues that i think you're touching on is in fact that we have moved so far away from this era all of our lives are sort of inextricably intertwined with computing now but becoming a person who could do computer work like both programming and hardware as a hobby is beyond the reach of most people without a really significant time investment. Yeah, that's true. Maybe I'm projecting my experiences of what computing, computers, and software looks like now onto the past. Maybe it was a lot cooler. Maybe I would have been more into it. Mm -hmm. Another really important development that's happening around this time, and a little bit before this time, is some of the first major, quote-unquote, hypermedia projects are coming together. So we talked a little bit in a patron episode about something called the Aspen Movie Map, which is one of the first major hypermedia projects. So hypermedia is essentially any media that includes links to other media within it. Nested media, a Russian doll, if you will. So the Aspen Movie Project was basically Google Maps before Google Maps. These folks got some funding in the 70s to drive around Aspen with a sort of stabilized camera on a car and take a bunch of pictures and video and link it all in between so that you could click from picture to picture to sort of take yourself all around Aspen, which in the 70s was like very ahead of its time, I would say. We wouldn't have Google Maps Street View for like quite a few more decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the same time where they've like invented the hyperlink or something like that, you know, to click between different pages. Yeah, I don't know if the hyperlink was exactly invented in this time. I couldn't find a clear like this is the day the first hyperlink ever. I couldn't find that answer, but it is a time when hypermedia is becoming a bigger and bigger part of computing and a bigger and bigger part specifically of the internet. Another program that comes out in this Commodore 64 era is this thing called HyperCard, which was an Apple program developed by this guy, Bill Atkinson. We'll talk about him in just a second. And HyperCard was basically this database where you could have a card and you could put all kinds of media on that card like pictures text all of that and link it to other cards in a stack of cards essentially like what would later resembles how most web pages work which are sort of like hypertexts which are linked to each other yeah so kind of like big giant cork board with flashcards all over it with like right with thread with like the charlie day it's always sunny red thread connecting it yeah part of what is particularly interesting part of why i like specifically chose to bring up hypercard one reason is because terry was inspired by it i mean he was inspired by this whole era because he wanted temple os in addition to being the third temple to be a sort of pedagogical tool to empower particularly children to feel like they could do computing, to feel like computers were sort of their toy box and that computers were fun and and modifiable and could be like creative tools for kids to make things, which feels very connected to his whole philosophy that what we're here to do on earth is to sort of put a smile on God's face. I feel like this gets lost later in life as he sort of goes more and more off the rails, but 
I feel like part of the reason he created this pedagogical tool for kids to be able to create cool computing is because he sort of has as his highest value, like humans creating cool, interesting, beautiful, and funny stuff. That's what he's like interested in promoting. And, and that's what's at the heart of Temple OS in some ways. It's hard to imagine the excitement around something like hypermedia or hyperlinks now. it's It feels so dated, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's hard to then imagine why someone like Terry would get excited by something like that and incorporate it all over his operating system, which we'll talk about in other episodes. But like the equivalent now is like people's excitement about AI. Right. And I totally. can imagine someone 50 years from now being like, well, AI is just a, like, hypermedia is like a marketing term, you know, to describe, right. you know, just stuff that's linked together, you know. Mm-hmm. And like AI or machine learning is just a marketing term for big statistical model you put stuff into and it gives you something out. But people are very excited by it and are inspired by it. And, you know, I'm very cynical and, like, don't think it's all that. Although there is, like, a real difference of scale and accessibility in this Commodore 64 era. And as Terry was writing Temple OS, the bar for entry, both in terms of specialist knowledge and in terms of money to get into hypermedia and to and to hobby computing was much more accessible to many more people than to like get into AI at a similar level. Uh, yeah, that's true in, in some ways. I don't think they're fundamentally different necessarily. I mean, I think hypermedia is sort of inherently less exploitative in most cases, but I just mean like, you know, computing just wasn't as much of a monopoly at this time. The costs were just more relative to the average person's income. Like... There are differences of scale that make it feel different, even if some of the same forces are at play. Sure, you can create your own hypermedia using the tools available to you then. You really can't make something, you can't make an AI model that is on par with what Google is doing now, for sure. Right. I think it's interesting that you bring up AI and and how blasé we feel about AI, because as I was researching hypermedia, I was thinking about how passe it feels to talk about Talmud as a hypertext. Like there was a period of time like in 2017 where it felt like people were really excited about talking about how Talmud is hypermedia. Safaria was just being created, which is actually like the most like uh, significant hypermedia development in Jewish text in quite a while. And people were really excited about talking about how much the Talmud was the same as the internet, essentially. And now that's become incredibly passe. But going back and thinking about this era of the creation of hypermedia made me feel a little more excited about like, oh, yeah, maybe I've like sort of got fed up with talking about hypertext because I got oversaturated, but maybe there is still something a little bit cool there. Yeah, it's cool. Hypermedia is cool. These AI models, it's all cool. You know, it's like when you say, oh, I really like the band, but I don't like the band's fans. Yeah. I think there's that kind of phenomenon. So this also feels very related to circling back to HyperCard and Bill Atkinson, the creator of HyperCard. He created HyperCard following an LSD trip. And when I first found that out, I was like, oh, I can't wait to learn about this because like, it's cool that a computer program was LSD inspired. Like, what is that? 
what kind of interesting stuff am I going to find out about LSD and hypermedia? They feel connected <laughs> as a LSD enjoyer, former LSD enjoyer. Definitely feels like a inherent connection. But then I went and I watched this interview with Bill and listened to like everything he had to say about consciousness. And he talked about how Steve Jobs was really into doing LSD. He talked about how he thinks humanity is a step in the grand experiment of developing consciousness. And him and this other big tech exec who was interviewing him on this show were just like waxing poetic about LSD like two stoner kids, which I actually found really distasteful because I was like, this, I have like such a pure love in my heart for little baby me who was so excited about all of those revelations of LSD. Mm -hmm. But seeing two incredibly rich tech executives do the same thing was just like, ugh, felt really yucky. Then I learned what it means when he says that hypercard was developed following an lsd trip is literally like he does he says his deal is he does acid about every five years and then he uses that time on lsd to like get in touch with himself and his values and then he says and then i need time to produce he like mm. does acid in order to like give himself a period of extreme productivity afterwards and that is the period in which hypercard was created okay all right yeah, i know it's kind of, was kind of a bummer revelation but it does all feel very connected to and we'll talk about this even more after we listen to this sam interview it feels really connected to what's going on for terry I feel like for him, Temple OS is like an expression of the spirituality of hypermedia yeah, and yeah. computing that is seemingly incredibly genuine. And hypercard, when you dig out the context underneath it and its connection to Bill Atkinson's spirituality, quote unquote, yeah, is not like a beautiful, genuine connection to hypermedia, but is like sterile and terrifying. Yeah, it's a little terrifying. It does parallel a lot of what Terry might be doing, and it does remind me a lot of what Sam said when I talked to him about what could be going on here. Yeah, so this is probably the perfect off-ramp then, now that this is coming up so much, to intro. We're going to play now a wonderful interview we did with friend of the show, Sam Biagetti, who will be in this series a couple times, talking about the ups and downs, the pluses and minuses, the ins and outs of modernity and mysticism, which... Maybe you'll immediately see why it's relevant, and if not, afterwards, we're going to talk about how it connects to, to Temple OS and to what we've just been talking about now with the whole Commodore 64 era. So, without any further ado, roll the tape. If you don't already know, Sam is our resident homosexual historian. <laughs> we have him on retainer. Excuse me, I am pro bono. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not familiar with Sam's podcast, he does create historian splaining. There is some crossover in listenership between Hi, How Are You and historian splaining because you have appeared on the pod to do crossover episodes about Jewish history. We did the history of Hasidic Judaism. We did a history of Shabbatai Zvi. I think we've done something else. We did one other sort of more generally on subgroupings and subdivisions in among the Jewish 
population. That's right. So for the listeners who are not historians planning fans, you should all become historians planning fans. I wanted to talk about Temple OS with you. You listened to that episode that Hava and I announced about this operating system that the creator said is inspired by God and is the literal third temple, according to the creator. What was your reaction to listening to that episode? Do you think this is a good idea? Give me what you think. Well, it's certainly happened many times that people see technologies as fulfillment of prophecies. You know, when you think about prophecies of the end times or, you know, Ezekiel's vision of the wheel and the creatures in the air, people have connected those things to things like air travel or space flight and related them back to kind of the hidden meanings of prophecies. So it's not totally surprising that someone would say, well, we've been anticipating the third temple, and yet it doesn't seem to be materializing like in a literal way. So they've looked for maybe signs of some sort of different, more invisible, more spiritual temple. And they find that in technology and specifically in software, right? Which is kind of an intangible, invisible thing, but has this like hidden architecture to it. I think there's lots of times when someone who isn't an insider to a technology sees an outside technology, and then they start imagining like the possibilities of a technology and imagine, you could say that they imagine like a, a new like age that will come. But I think it's interesting in the Temple OS case that you have this, this is an insider. This is someone who is an expert at computer engineering and software and intimately knows the nitty gritty bits and pieces of how to actually get a computer to work. And I'd expect some demystification to occur if you're an insider expert. So I think it's interesting that that hasn't happened, like mystification is happening with this insider. And it reminds me a little bit of, you know, these relative insiders. You, you can think of like crypto insiders or just like tech entrepreneur insiders. These people who know quite a lot about this technical minutia that they've devoted their time to, and yet they're the ones mystifying it, not outsiders. Well, I guess outsiders too, but it's interesting when the insiders start to mystify like this. You know, it reminds me of what you talked to me about once about like being a shut eye. Right. Do you think that's relevant? Well, I, I don't think it's the same thing, but being a shut-eye, I learned of that notion from an interesting interview with Orson Welles, who, before he made films, he tried for a while to be fortune teller, like at carnivals. He said that he went and studied with experienced mind readers and fortune tellers, specifically mind readers, I should say, and tried to learn the craft. And they would tell him, you know, you just have to practice a lot. You look at someone, you guess their age, you look at their clothes, you guess their social class, and you throw out guesses. Do you think they're married? Do you think they have siblings? And you just try it over and over again and see when you get a hit, right? A successful guess. And then you keep doing this until it becomes intuitive and you can get very good at it. And the gears can kind of turn unconsciously. You can just look at someone, quickly size them up, and come up with a life story for them that might have a lot of truth to it, but it's all running sort of intuitively. There are some people who do this, and they forget that, that that's what they're doing. They forget that they have practiced it and that it's guesswork. And they begin to instead believe that they really do have magical powers, that they really are reading someone's mind. That type of person is called a shut-eye. I thought it was so striking that this is such a known recurring phenomenon in the trade, that there's even a word for it. 
And people could warn you, oh, you know, this guy, he's a shut-eye. He thinks he really has psychic powers, etc. So I can see what how you're, you're relating that to someone who actually programs software and yet thinks that it's that it is like literally a sacred temple, right? Not even yeah. just a metaphor, like you're saying. He really literally believes that's what it is. But to me, it's I see it a bit differently because, you know, mystification is where you take something that has an observable explanation and you try to make it inexplicable. You try to take something that isn't necessarily mysterious on its face and you try to make it into a mystery. And you often do that by misdirection and obfuscation, right? It sounds like this guy is being very explicit. He's being explicit, he's being literal, and he's comparing it to the temple, right? And the temple is man-made, right? The temple was an actual earthly structure, at least according to the traditional narrative, but it also had hidden meanings, right? It had divine cosmic meaning and symbolism in its fabric, but it's not as if a hand, at least if, unless I'm misreading the mythology, it's not as if a divine hand reached out of the sky and created it. It was human beings who built it. You are a historian of the Masons, so I imagine conscious or unconscious mystification happens there. Did you think there's conscious mystification happening here? Do you think your experience researching the Masons informs like when you see the mystification process taking place in other in other areas of of life or history well that's 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 an interesting question i mean when it comes to freemasonry i think there is mystification mainly in how people understand and represent the history of the institution itself which if you look in the historical evidence it's not that hard to piece together (laughs) how it all came about, right? But actually, you know, they've always been, for centuries, at least since the early 1700s, they have been influenced a lot by Kabbalah and by other kind of related Hermetic and Neoplatonic mystical ideas, which are actually, in a deep way, they're actually remarkably consonant with scientific thinking, right? We tend to think of these things as opposed But they're not necessarily, because the sort of basic assumption is that the world is intelligible. You just have to sort of improve and sharpen your mind and your observation in order to understand it, right? But it's not as if the universe is beyond the grasp of the human mind to embrace or comprehend, right? And Freemasons relate their origins to Solomon's Temple. So, you know, there's obviously a connection there. But Solomon's Temple, it's been used and reused and adapted over and over again for thousands of years now. And it tends to be used as a symbol or metaphor for human activity creating a sort of ordered universe that is in harmony with the cosmos, right? Or I should say an ordered world that is somehow in harmony and reflects the cosmos in a harmonious way, right? It's a celebration of human capability together with God, right? What you could call theurgy, right? Working together with God, with the divine. And that's different from what I would call mystical experience, which is more about the, the ineffable, the, the, the dimension of existence that cannot be grasped in an intelligible way and that cannot be represented or verbalized, right? The sort of the, the unreachable dimension. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, okay. So there's mystification, which is about 
trying to understand what is by its nature unreachable. But I would stop there and I would say the word mystification has a negative connotation, which is important because when someone mystifies something, they're being misleading, right? And that's different from mysticism or mystical experience where people sincerely believe that they are encountering something that is beyond representation that it that exists sort of on a different plane from intelligible everyday reality okay so there's mysticism which is trying to make sense of things that by their nature can't be made sense of with logic so the masons are doing some of that i mean i think that the masons the masons are trying to work with and develop and share a kind of loosely organized worldview that is not mystical per se Right. And I hesitate to say rational because that also is like a very loaded word that I don't think ultimately makes a lot of sense. (laughs) So I avoid using it. But Freemasonry, it celebrates human capabilities, right? It celebrates the human capability to rise above and to master the world as we experience it, right? And a lot of it is about making order, right? Order out of chaos. In a sense, you could say that the mystic. I wouldn't say it's totally outside or, or or excluded from Freemasonry. It can be there too, but it's different. The mystical impulse is almost the opposite. It's like showing the deep, unfathomable, kind of ungraspable reality that disrupts and undermines what seems to be an ordered, intelligible world. So you then don't really see a connection between an organization like the Masons and something like this Temple OS thing. There's not like a similar psych- psychological... No, no, what I'm saying, I don't think, to me, Temple OS doesn't sound mystical. Okay. To me, Temple OS sounds much more like this sort of hermetic, neoplatonic line of thinking that this person, I mean, I don't know, you, you'd have to tell me more about him, I don't know, but it seems as if he thinks that he has the tools... Right? He has the tools to make this ordered world on Earth to reflect the cosmos. He's been given the inspiration to do it. Okay. That's opposed to mysticism. I think so. I think so. We can have our cake and eat it too. It's like we can be, yeah. we can do the mysticism, but also we get results. Well, it, it sort of depends on how you look at, at human beings, right? And our minds and our intellects. It's like, are we reflections of God in the sense that we can understand and see the underlying structure of things and build from that? Or are we in some way radically inadequate? Our words, our numbers our five senses, are they in some way radically inadequate to even comprehend the reality, the underlying reality of things, right? The mystic always is running up against this ceiling, right? The, the mystic always talks about, I can tell you so much, but beyond that, I can't. It's, it's incommunicable. It's ineffable. This is maybe coming totally from left field, but it reminds me a little bit of Zionism, like Zionism as kind of against mysticism. Mysticism is kind of trying to get what you can get, but knowing that there's a limit. And then Zionism is, is trying to do that, what did you call it, like a Neoplatonic thing. And you have all the tools in front of you to, like, make some sort of actualized society happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with Zionism, it's something, obviously, we'd have to explore more to kind of puzzle it out. But I do think there is a connection there. There's at least a parallel where, I mean, some Zionists were Freemasons. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. I mean, there have been many Jewish Freemasons since at least the 1600s. That's not an unusual thing. But... Jews who were Masons very often 
they were more kind of unorthodox. They were not so wedded to traditional rabbinic and Talmudic Judaism. And like I said, there was a lot of kind of borrowing from Kabbalah, that certainly, but it was a very specific kind. It was a very limited sort of selective borrowing. It was a borrowing that emphasized the kind of most optimistic aspects, the idea that the temple can be rebuilt, that the new Jerusalem is attainable, and that there can be this sort of future of order and harmony, interreligious harmony. When it comes to, to Zionism, I think, you know, a very important pillar is the idea that Jews can sort of take up their place among the other nations of the earth and can have the ability to free themselves, right? We don't have to wait for this Messiah with, you know, the divine backing. We can take our destiny into our, our own hands and take our place in the world as, you know, as free people in control of our own destiny, Okay, right? So, I think that, I think it is related. Most early Zionists, I think, did not think about rebuilding the temple. I mean, at least not that I know of. I haven't researched it enough. But they were more thinking, oh, we want a secular nation state. And a connection to the biblical past sort of secures our claim on this piece of territory as a national group. You know, the same as Serbians want to claim Serbia and, you know, what have you. Or Czechs want a Czech nation. Jews should have a Jewish nation in this historical piece of territory. But, you know, things have gotten very scrambled now, right? It's yeah, it's sure. much more complicated than that. I just want to summarize. So I went into this conversation thinking this Temple OS, this is mystical. And now what I'm hearing is that like this Temple OS idea, this like, I'm going to take the tools that I have and go and create this beautiful thing. That's like a similar mentality to Neoplatonic stuff, Hermeticism, mm -hmm. maybe Zionism. I'm even thinking maybe liberalism in general. This hopeful believe in like the power of the individual or collection of individuals to somehow transform us and bring us into an age of Aquarius kind of thing. Right. Well, I think it's very humanistic, right? And it's and at some point, it's impossible to separate out whether you're talking about secular humanism or religious humanism, right? But it, I, it strikes me as a very humanistic project, right? It's like, here we are using our current most uh, sophisticated cutting edge technology that is useful and has all these applications that people can take up and use in their everyday lives. And we can build it from the ground up, right? Metaphorically speaking, redesign it, rebuild it all from the ground up to have this sort of perfect architecture, this almost divine architecture. To me, it sounds like a very humanistic project. Which is what the Masons were doing, what yes. Zionists, some Zionists, at least historically, maybe were doing, what liberals, maybe a lot of different political activists and different movements were doing. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds very modern, right? This is the thing that throws people off. It's like when you talk about Solomon's Temple, sometimes people think, oh, you must be this like obscurantist obsessed with antiquarianism and divine secrets. Well, you know, I mean, interest in divine secrets is a perfectly modern thing. It's not as if people stopped being interested in that. <laughs> as a mo I'm, I'm, I'm so interested. Okay, so I initially asked you, like, I was initially going to ask you, maybe I even did, where does the urge to do mysticism come from? This conversation makes me realize that's not the question I should be asking. It's 
where does this modern kind of Prometheus reinvent, create this like heaven on earth, this new utopia come from? We talked about Zionism as a response. That's one reaction to certain societal problems that were happening with Jews at the time. You know about Masons. I don't know exactly why the Masonic movement happened, but I assumed it's a response to some sort of societal changes. If you had to make a guess, why do you think now these kind of technological pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we can use AI, we, we can use, I don't know, what are some other examples, like effective altruism, we can use crypto, we can use Temple OS. Do you think those things have some sort of thing in common that is analogous to where the Masons are coming from? Yeah, I mean, that that's, that's a hard question. I guess I have certain kind of impulses or inclinations as to how I would look for an answer to that question. And I think that very often the real answers are in people's relationships and how they relate to each other on like an everyday level. Because if someone had a problem or a question like, oh, I'm sick, should I take an herbal potion? I have a problem, my my cart's fallen apart, how am I going to fix it? You would turn to people you knew every day, right? And you would know that certain people would have special knowledge of how to deal with these problems. Maybe they're a blacksmith or a carpenter. They know how to fix the cart. Maybe they're a healer, right? A cunning person who knows how to treat someone who's sick or how to stanch bleeding. And you would kind of invest great meaning and authority into those special knowledges and practices that those people have because you see it happening in front of you, right? And now I think we're living in a world where we're not turning to those sort of everyday contacts that we see as sort of wise persons or cunning persons. We ask Google. The first line of defense is technological, right? It's like, I have to search for it on the internet or in a database. And even if you do need medicine or something for your body, the first way you reach out is through a computer or through a phone. And in a way, this is now like our portal to knowledge of the world to solve our our issues and our problems. Is that similar to why the Masons came about? My understanding is Masons came around when you start having more cities. So suddenly you have a society where you don't have the one healer in your town or the one blacksmith in your town or the one this in your town. You have all these groups of people coming from all over the place and the internet, the equivalent of Google, is like now this new city and you you have to create some sort of new... I don't know, creating an organization like the Masons or creating a Zionist movement, is it helpful to think of it as responses to this problem of suddenly your reliable expert sources aren't really there anymore? Like you're not investing in those particular people and those relationships anymore? There's been some sort of change that's happened? I mean, I think so. I think that's usually where the answer lies. And I mean, if you want to talk about where did the Freemasons come from? I mean, that's a very multi-step, multi-layered story. Well, I think it sounds like you're thinking of like the really early, early roots, like in the Middle Ages, right? And it's definitely the case that by the late Middle Ages, like when we know that Masons were organizing themselves in their so-called lodges, right? Their kind of work site buildings and gathering places. By that time, there was already a sense that Masons were weird and different. And there was a kind of, you know, it's a very common thing, a sort of love-hate curiosity, right? What are these people up to? Because they they lived in a sort of sub-world of their own, where they would travel around 
to work sites, they would only go if it was like a major building project, like a big cathedral, usually, or sometimes a, a castle or an abbey or, you know, city walls. And they lived by this special craft knowledge that they had and shared among themselves that was just like incomprehensible to everybody else. How could you even explain to someone who hadn't worked at work sites for years how you build a, you know, 400 foot tall cathedral? And did so with no plans, no maps, no writing. Most of them were illiterate. It was this whole alternate world of knowledge. And yet people couldn't just ignore it and dismiss it because they were building these magnificent structures that people used then for years. It was undeniable that they had some sort of special power. And if you were in the group, you kind of played on that. You knew that other people were suspicious of you, but also a little bit in awe. This is, sounds really similar to computer scientists now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think computer scientists should do a little more like wizardry, you know yeah. what I mean? Like you should play this up a little more. I mean, We're also illiterate. <laughs> totally illiterate, socially illiterate. But yeah, it's like you're a weird subworld unto yourself. And so the parts of, of being a Mason that maybe are a little bit more mystical, even though you're downplaying that, there's something similar to that in maybe Temple OS or, or things like Temple OS. I mean, I think maybe one way you can relate them that might be clarifying is like when it comes to Freemasonry, I would say they're very aware that they appear mysterious and a bit weird to the outside world, right? But there are enough historical documents about their rituals and myths that have leaked out that you can pretty well reconstruct what the process is of how they bring someone in, teach them secret knowledge, put them through initiation rituals and through the different degrees. You can learn about this stuff. And the big reveal, in a sense, is that there like isn't a big reveal. <laughs> like when you join, you get presented with this story and this way of talking about the world and morality that is not so bizarre and, and that is not all that shocking and that draws on these classic myths like Solomon's Temple that many different people have used through the centuries. You know, there's no Baphomet, there's no worshiping the devil, and there's no like big twist, right? The joke is really on everyone else, right? The joke is on the rest of us who right. think that there's something weird going on, something more weird, right? Something more, something contrary to ordinary impulses and norms, right? They're actually quite conventional in all kinds of ways. They just have a sort of neat, crystallized symbolic language for talking about ordinary morality, like keep your promises, you know, give to charity. And I wonder if maybe Temple OS is something similar. Now, I'm curious what this guy said his message from God was, and I wonder about what he sees as like the ultimate use of this operating system of like how he sees it coming to fruition in use. But I would suspect that it might be a similar sort of thing that like the big reveal is that it's an operating system. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's this distinction we made. Well, first of all, Sam, thank you so much for coming on. I really, I sprung this on you. Totally. Totally. I was like, I didn't know we were doing anything. But, you know, <laughs> this is, it's all very... We're trying to define mysticism. What is even going on here? We're just doing it live. Ooh, there's a ladybug on the microphone cord. Oh, there are a lot of ladybugs here. 
And that's pretty cool. So you laid out this distinction between the mystical approach to dealing with reality and kind of this modern Prometheus man approach to like mm, yeah. dealing with the reality around you. I'm wondering where you personally feel like you fall. Where's the dial turned for you? We live in this kind of world where you were saying where Google is the first thing we're going to or we're not investing in like the blacksmith next door. So mm-hmm. maybe it's hard to be 100% mystical kind of have that mindset how do you deal with being a mo- how, do, how, do, how do you just deal with being alive sam just like what's the deal there what's the deal uh, it's tough it's tough i mean i think you know in some ways i'm sort of like a moth i'm like a moth just kind of circling around a light bulb and like tapping at it and not really understanding what's going on because i think that if you take a sort of scientific worldview and figure that, you know, we as humans are capable of isolating variables and doing controlled experiments and figuring out about how many, many things work. And we've built up this like really sophisticated, useful sort of model of chemistry, biology, astrophysics. We're like doing the thing. We're doing the thing, right? And I think it is remarkable how much of that scientific knowledge we've accumulated that does hang together pretty well, right? On some level, my impulse... I have conflicting impulses, right? One impulse is to say, like, we're doing the thing. It's working. Like, why mess with it? And then at the same time, I have this nagging knowledge, like, yeah, but there are also some things that really don't make sense, you know, or things that we have to accept as making sense, that if you talk to someone even just like 40 years ago, they would say that's absolutely ridiculous. You know, freaking quantum entanglement. I'm okay with quantum mechanics. But once I figured out what was quantum entanglement, yeah, that's I was like, no, 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 no. This, this, this is not supposed to happen. Like, who? Someone is messing with us. It is not supposed to work this way. Yeah, there, there's all sorts of paradoxes that underlie the foundations of basic mathematics too that aren't really worth going into here, probably because I don't really understand them fully. Yeah, right. Like you can't define arithmetic. <laughs> yeah, there's all sorts of shit. It's Goodles like proof you can't define the rules of arithmetic. One of our listeners sent us like a really good math related thing. I mentioned something about Girdle's incompleteness theorem and how like that there are provably unknowable facts uh-huh. in the world. Uh-huh. And they pointed out that you can prove under the rules and set theory that you can turn a sphere into two spheres. Mm-hmm. somehow magically. I don't know, mathematically. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anything about set theory. I don't know anything about anything. But yeah, there are these like weird things that are unknowable that seem unaddressable by this kind of use the tools and the accumulated knowledge you have to figure it out approach that you see as the Masonic approach and I see as kind of like the the Zionist approach in some ways and maybe is present here in Temple OS. And yeah, like the mystical response is like the, the opposite. Yeah. And it's funny, I think it's interesting, some people really gravitate towards the weird paradoxes and the weird mysteries of like these anomalous organisms that seem like they shouldn't exist and the weird astrophysical phenomena that shouldn't exist. Like some people's minds really uh, like suck those things in. And, yeah, and, yeah. And I'm not like that. I'm, not, I'm like, I love mysteries. I love open questions. But... I'm not, it's not like my mind, I don't catalog the weird, the anomalous. Like, that's not how I, that's just not how I operate. It's more like I'm just aware that it's there. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same way. It's like, I don't have like a catalog of knowledge that I know 
can't be addressed by, you know, the scientific method. But I am fascinated that it's out there. And I know enough to know that it is out there. That's kind of where I am. I'm like a bug flying around the light bulb a uh-huh. little bit. Yeah, and I guess I guess part of what I'm thinking is like some people, they gravitate to those things and they get a kind of spiritual inspiration from yeah them. yeah they do and to me i'm like i th- th- to me that doesn't count it's like no i i i want to actually just have a mystical vision actually <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> like, yeah, yeah i'm much more interested i don't care about like the rare fish with the impossible anatomy you know <laughs> like sorry <laughs> yeah at the end of the day i don't really care about girls in completeness theorem i just like hope that somehow by knowing it it'll give me the mystical experience but so far it hasn't so far i'm still like looking for it I'm still looking for that mystical experience, but I don't know. Sometimes you get it. You just have to do drugs. Yeah, there's drugs. I mean, I also have a friend who insists that I read The Cloud of Unknowing, which I still haven't read. And of course, I haven't just even sat down and read The Zohar, but I don't know. Yeah. Who cares? I I feel like reading The Zohar (laughs) is just as necessary as reading Karl Marx which is not necessary it's at like all. Not so like, much. Like, I have a feeling like you just, you can skip over that stuff. But I don't know, maybe that's unfair. Sam, thank you so much for going on this. I, I know I, I probably gave you whiplash more than you're comfortable with as a historian, as a scholar, someone who likes to have lots of caveats and be very, very specific about what he says and not be pinned down in a way that's going to <laughs> get him totally destroyed by his fans. Destroyed. <laughs> You're going to be just fine, Sam. I really appreciate you coming on. Hi, how are you? Yeah, my pleasure. And if you want to check out Sam, do you want to say anything that you want people to know about? Just look at historian explaining if you haven't. And uh, yeah, just be open to the mysteries. That's all. Be open to the mysteries. Okay. So there you have it. There you have it. There you have it. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as we have enjoyed it. So what I was thinking when I said that this whole dichotomy between HyperCard and Temple OS feels really relevant to what Sam had to say is it felt like once I learned Bill Atkinson's like relationship to LSD, which is essentially like use it as a productivity tool dressed up as self-actualization, it felt really connected to Sam's concept of mystification. Basically taking something that is essentially just the capitalist work ethic and sort of giving it a shiny rainbow psychedelic coat of paint to make it seem like something magical. Also related in the interview, Sam talks about like a theurgic approaches to doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Or it's like if you can connect to the divine and work with the divine to do stuff and make the world better or make yourself better, like perfect yourself right. or perfect the world. So it's very theurgic in that way with the hypercard stuff and also with Terry. I feel like that's something similar. Terry, perhaps he's doing something like that. Yeah, I mean, now that you're saying it, it makes me think about what I was saying just a second ago about Temple OS was intended to be a pedagogical tool for kids specifically, and that part of what Terry is trying to achieve in the divine realm is to put a smile on God's face. And that is like theurgy, explicit theurgy. It's like, I'm trying to effect a change in the divine realm of like bringing joy and laughter. And the way I can do that is by, you know, 
being funny, essentially, um, or being clever, or uh, lots of different ways Terry thinks we can do that. But it does feel like a, a very explicit theurgy, but kind of like different than what I think of when I think of of theurgic, like Kabbalah and stuff like that. I don't know. Maybe Kabbalah kind of is sort of similar. Maybe it's coming from a similar place where you're trying to change the world around you through the tools you have now. And And I love how Sam basically said this is a very modern thing. This mm-hmm. is a modern mindset where, like, you can, with the tools you have, go about, you know, changing the world around you, bringing about a world to come. And, you know, he talks about how, like, the big reveal for a lot of these people, like, maybe temp- maybe the big reveal about Temple OS is that it's just an operating system. Or maybe, like, the big reveal about the Masons is that they just have the same morality as you and me. They just have a different symbology around that morality that ultimately is the same as, like, thou shall not kill and, like, be nice to people. Right. You actually have reminded me of another connection that I thought was really interesting, which was you mentioned in... um in you and Sam's conversation about the Masons, about how you feel like that's how computer programmers are now, basically. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it feels really connected to talking about Commodore 64 in the demo scene, which feels like an era in which those sort of secret codes that hobbyists, hobby computer folks, folks in the demo scene used, that secret subculture was being sort of fermented and developed and it's really, in a lot of ways, at the base of the mystification of computer programmers today is still sort of like that attitude of being the beleaguered nerd amongst the normies feels like connected to how programmers and programming show up in the world today. Yeah, it's weird. It's almost like there are certain groups of people that have the power to actually affect change in the world technologically Mm -hmm. because of their particular expertise. Mm -hmm. And then something happens where maybe they mystify that work and then start doing a theurgy thing and saying that what they're doing is actually in line with like God's plan and stuff like that. Right. Actually changing the world. They go full Elon. They go full Elon. And that's definitely something that computer people do. And that could be, uh, you know, Sam would probably, I don't, I don't know what Sam would say, but I imagine maybe that's happening in early, early Masonic history with some of these Masons who kind of realize they have a special skill. Everyone mm-hmm. thinks they're weirdos. They only hang out with each other. Right. But they're building all the churches. Very like another group of people we talk about a lot on this show. Who? Who? The rabbis. The rabbis. They're all hanging out in each other's basements, making up halacha. Well, then then I wonder about the whole Kabbalah thing, the theurgic Kabbalah. Is it similar? Is it coming from a similar place? Right. And also, I I think it's interesting that the the Kabbalah really becomes a thing in the Middle Ages, pre-modern. I think there's maybe some sort of weird relationship between this kind of style of thinking and like imagining that you're fulfilling this divine destiny and how everyone thinks now. I think we all walk around with these kind of like, all these ideas sound so ridiculous. Like, oh, like I am like completing God's will. But I think we all sort of walk around thinking that when we're like, you know, there are certain political people that believe oh democracy will like save the world and like right we need to spread democracy around the world and we mm-hmm. have we're america we have the tools to do it and like we're fulfilling some sort of destiny and i, I feel like there's so many of these unconscious narratives that we carry around that are very you could say are very parallel to these theurgic 
practices that people have done. It's almost like what Terry's doing, what's so striking about it maybe is that it's not so different from what we're all what we're all doing. You know, maybe some of us are like, if we all just do local organic farms, it'll like save the world, right? Right. And we have this idea that we're like fulfilling like some divine goodness and doing a local farm. Maybe that isn't so different from what Terry's doing. It's it's actually familiar. It's like looking in the mirror, but it's like extra exaggerated for us. Well, that's what I think is so, what's so appealing about, what has been so appealing about doing this whole show is that like history and our lives are hypertexts, which is really just a fancy way of saying that like everything is interconnected. But something that we come up against again and again as we do all this research is like we look for something in Temple OS and then we find something that looks similar in the Middle Ages and then we find something that looks similar in the 80s and then we find something that looks similar in um, the second rabbinic century. And That's really just because, like, to me, I think that's just, like, the nature of reality is that certain truths are just expressed in the world again and again, and we can catch on to those truths and see the connections. So, when we're making this series, really, Temple OS could be substituted for any, you know, a blade of grass or, like, the dog food industry. Literally, anything could take the place of Temple OS because reality is a fractal hypertext you know yeah 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 it's true one of the things that's interesting about terry is that i don't think he's doing any mystification i think he's being very straightforward which is what makes it so much more palatable than hypercard yes exactly exactly if the hypercard guy it almost would be better if the hypercard guy was just like yeah, God just like told me to do it, so I did it. Yeah, that's what I wanted him to say, like it came to me in a vision. But instead, he said what he said. What's refreshing is that Terry is basically saying, oh yeah, it came to me in a vision. I'm not trying to like make this mysterious to you at all. I'm just telling you straightforward right. what's Literally the opposite, here. literally trying to make it as easy to use and transform for everyone as possible. Literally trying to make it a tool accessible to children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's something endearing about it, but there's still this theurgy happening too, which... You know, even though I've just said that we're all kind of doing the theurgy modern thing to a certain extent, I mean, it is, when you look at an example of it that is jarring to you like this, usually my instinct is to be like, oh, wow, this is person, I need to run away from them. I need to run away from them. All right. Like, they are self-obsessed. They're going to, like, try to convince me that they're brilliant. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, obfuscate what's actually going on. I and mean, he just really right. doesn't. So that's that's kind of an interesting pattern break from what I often associate with kind of these, I don't know, kind of culty kind of theurgical mm, processes that I see. I don't know if I'm saying yeah. words right. And but. yeah, at the same time, Terry has a dedicated following, e- even posthumously, of internet guys, some of whom are harmless and some of whom seem pretty shitty who view him as as sort of that prophetic cultic character yeah yeah it's true uh, if you poke so around. sometimes people do that to you even if you don't do it to yourself i mean he did he does talk a lot about how great he is but his work doesn't follow the same pattern of someone trying to obscure their work to make themselves seem great right. but he talks a lot in his videos he's like i'm a fucking genius that's why god chose me to do this 
Right, right, right. But he's not giving you parables. There's no obfuscation, no mystification happening, which is very nice. Yeah. And in a way, I mean, that's what it's paradoxical because sometimes his lack of mystification makes things even more sort of confusing. Like, you you know, he's been asked, like, why does Temple OS only allow a limited color palette? And he's like, that's just the way God wanted it because it's inherently better to have a limited color palette. Like, well, okay, I respect the clarity of that answer. Yeah. And you have raised 1,000 more questions. <laughs> but it's better than reading through a bunch of magicians patter right true true and to a lot of extent what we're doing now is sort of a gemara on terry's mishnah you know the mishnah is this incredibly bold document oftentimes in right, the mishnah right. they'll make legal changes that are just like yeah fuck it we do this who cares what the torah says they never say it quite so explicitly but they're really bold and then the gemara comes around and it's like oh like what did they really mean and like what was going on and who were all the characters they come along and sort of like dig out all kinds of other stories out of the sort of boldness of the mishnah mm -hmm. yeah terry bold bold if nothing else a bold guy. Well, I feel like we've covered what I came here to cover today. Yeah. You know, this is what I this is what I wanted to say is just like the ways in which mysticism and modernity and the lack of both of those things have played out in the Commodore 64 era in Temple OS and in our own lives today and wow. I think we did it. We did it. Okay. Well, listeners, we'll see you in the next one. Yeah. Bye. Bye.